Hi there. You're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jay Humphrey, and alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes and struggles of our guests, allowing us to explore, be challenged and to grow. Here's what's coming up today. A lot of successful people have a superiority complex. And I have that. And I also had that when I was young. I was like, I believe I am better than my surroundings. I believe I'm better than my environment. I can be bigger than where I am now. Any business is a vehicle to serve you, right? not to serve other people is to serve you to make you more happy make you more you know like give you income to provide for your family like it's a vehicle for you the moment that you move to becoming almost like a slave to your business because you're playing someone else's game on how much to fundraise how big your team is how big your office is how many press articles you have that's the time that you've actually just lost the game don't get involved in the status game Because the moment that you get involved in the status game, every day of your life, you would be like, oh, well, they've got more than me. They've got more than me. And it's such a bullshit way to live your life. So today we welcome Timothy Armu to High Performance. This is part of our leadership series with PwC. And we talk often on this podcast about this sense of delaying our happiness, of people waiting for a moment in their life where suddenly everything's great and they no longer have problems. Well, you're about to hear a conversation with a young entrepreneur who sold his business for millions, and as he will share with you, it doesn't mean the game is over. Timo may well be on level two or level 25 of this game of life, but the truth is there are infinite levels to this game. And I think it's a really important conversation to have in a world where people are constantly chasing something. So let's get to it then, the latest episode from our leadership series in association with PwC. And the reason we wanted to work with PwC on these episodes is that they, as a business, align to our beliefs of building culture, of strong, sympathetic, empathetic leadership, and putting society at the heart of the world in which we live. So let's do it then. Entrepreneur Timo Armu on High Performance. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's what everyone starts with. Thanks for Thanks having, for having me. me. No, do it again. Welcome to the show. Let's roll. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What is your definition of high performance? I think it's two things. I think it's one, holding yourself to a higher standard. I think that is a very important thing. And then also having a sense of um, how good could you be? Like I've always said this, if someone was to ask me to write a book and us write a book about my own life it would be just called how good could you be and i think high performance is like constantly asking yourself the question how good could you be how could you stretch yourself how could you push yourself so that would probably be kind of my two-pronged definition of high performance so who was asking you that question myself you, even <laughs> when you were seven eight nine years old yeah like- i think um so I grew up in Ghana, like my first 10 years were in Ghana. And I think I had um, what I'd call harsh love. My grandma was uh, very much kind of, you can do this, you can be the best. And then it moved to 
to my mum when I came to London, she was very much like, you are the best. (laughs) Just like, keep going, keep doing whatever that you're doing. Just like, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And so I think that I constantly had this sense of um, how good could you be? Could you be as good a marketer as you think you are? Could you be a good entrepreneur as you think you are? Could you be a good public speaker as you think you are? So just like constantly asking yourself that question. I think it it started off externally and then it became almost like an internal dialogue, uh, which which worked, I guess. So that's an interesting observation that there are two questions that you can recognize were really effective. They just worked. Why did they work? What did it do for you? They offered me a kind of steer towards whether I was getting to the end goal that I wanted to, right? Because I think for a lot of people, they kind of start off things and they're just stuck in this inertia where it's like, I'm just doing this thing to just do this thing. And I just keep going on at the tempo and the pace that I'm used to. And constantly asking yourself this question of like, how good could you be? is quite a good way to almost be like, well, is this the best pace that I can go? Is this how fast I can learn this thing? Is this the skills that I should be getting at this point? And so when I ask myself that question a lot, I tend to question myself as to, well, am I really giving it everything or has because I've been doing this for the last, I don't know, two, three months or two, three years meant that I've just kind of got caught in this meh wave, right? Just kind of, yeah, things are going fine. Things are going well. So that's what it does to me to just almost jolt me every single time. So let's talk about specifics then, because I think so many people now are fed this dream of entrepreneurship, be your own boss, follow your passion, find your thing, sell it for millions, retire, be happy. Everything's great. So the first question is, how did you know that what you were doing was the right thing? One of the things that's interesting is like, I didn't always want to become an entrepreneur. I actually did a um, TED talk about this. And like, at some point I wanted to be a magician. And at some point I wanted to be a journalist. And at some point I wanted to be like a behavioral economist. Like I had several different times that I wanted to do something different until when I was like younger around like 15, 16, I was like, oh my God, like this is actually what I want to do with my life. And that was because at 17, I had like built and sold a small business. And I was like, oh my God, like this is like magic. I kind of think about something. I put it out into the world. Someone pays me for it. What was that business? So that company was called Entrepreneur Express. And basically it was like an online business publication. But it started off with me just like interviewing business people, but was an online blog. And the way I drove traffic through it was by creating really large um, Facebook pages, you know, about inspiration and motivation, like Tony Robbins quotes, Gary Vee quotes. And I take blogs and and I take posts from my blog, put in the Facebook pages and that would drive a ton of traffic back to the site that got bought around after 11 months that got bought by this American company now known as Horizon Media. So they're like quite a big um, ad agency, but they started off as being just like a media brand. And the idea basically that I had like started off this idea I had started off and thought, do you know what would be cool? Like to build a business media publication. And then I had figured out how to get eyeballs to it, how to monetize it. And then 
11 months afterwards, like me, a random kid in South London, some dude who is in America had basically been like, yo, we'd like to pay you for this. And the money at that point wasn't a lot. It was like 110 grand. But the idea that in 11 months I had thought about something and then I'd like magicked it and someone had basically said, yo, here's money for it. I was like, yeah, man, like this is my life, <laughs> you know, I'm going to commit to this. And like, that was how the whole entrepreneurship thing like really came in. Not so much at six years old, I decided this is what yeah, I'm yeah. going to do for the rest of my life. But if we can go back just two steps before you set up this business yeah, at yeah. 16, because there's lots of kids that might be doing like business studies projects at school yeah, and yeah. things like that. And it's local or they're selling to family and friends. I'm interested in where you had the inspiration to take an idea and actually put it out into the real world and try to monetize it. So Entrepreneur Express was my first like major success, but it was not my first company. Right. So I started my first kind of money-making project at 14 which was a tutoring company. And I was basically the middleman connecting tutors to students. And I started off teaching people maths. Then I grew this network of people who basically could teach like chemistry, biology, physics, blah, blah, because I was not the best person for that. So the hack that I used was I'd go to my school and I'd just ask the teachers, hey, um, in the last test that you did, who got the best grades? And then they'll just tell me. Then I'll just go to those students and I'll just say, hey, do you want to make some money? And so the whole business model was like £15 an hour, which was quite cheap for uh, tutoring. Um, I would basically um, connect them £15 an hour. I'll take £5. They'll keep £10. Now, how does that actually lead on to the whole Entrepreneur Express story? Uh, was that grew relatively quickly. Like We got it to 65 um, tutors in six weeks and I was just the connector, basically. And then what happened, as with any kind of uh, tutor style business, is when you connect the tutors to the students, once they've made that connection, you're not really needed that yeah. much, right? And so when it happened was I noticed that my cut was just getting like smaller and smaller and smaller. But... What it taught me was like, okay, you need to own the infrastructure, right? So rather than just connecting the two, how can you build something where you like own the payment, own the distribution, like own everything so people can't then go behind you? And so I then was thinking, oh, well, actually I should have a business where like I am the infrastructure. So Entrepreneur Express was quite a good example of like, I owned the media. I was the media brand. And I'd seen, you know, by that time, I think Business Insider was quite popular. Entrepreneur.com was quite popular. So I was like, well, they're doing something and it's, and it's working. So I should just do this for this particular niche. Um, and then from then it was just a bunch of like small um, wins, like how I got to interview Richard Branton. I basically found my way behind the door um there was a guy who was hosting this big conference and branson alan sugar james khan were all speaking and so i basically was like well i need to figure out a way to get in there and i didn't have a press pass or anything like that so then i basically emailed him and i said hey if i come the day before and i just like lay out all the chairs for you would you give me a behind the scenes pass? And he said, yeah, of course. That was how I got to interview Branson. That story I put on the blog that drove a shit ton of traffic. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. I think 
So you asked about how did I know? I think it was three things. Number one, because the tutoring company had ended in that way, it kind of gave me the framework for the next thing. Number two, I had seen companies like Business Insider, Entrepreneur.com, Inc.com. I was like, oh, well, they're doing it at scale. Surely that means there's an opportunity there. Um, And then I think the third thing was I had a bunch of like small wins, which indicated that, I could be the sort of person who could do something bigger, right? Those sort of frameworks and that sort of like past success dictates to some degree future results meant that it didn't feel unnatural to me. I was just like, oh, oh easy peasy. Well, there's a really intriguing bit on this that that we've asked other guests that started businesses at a young age like yourself. So when we spoke to Ben Francis with yeah. Jim Shark or Ben Towers who set yeah, up yeah. A, a, his own business at 12, What messages were you receiving from home? So I had both an advantage and a disadvantage. The disadvantage was that my parents didn't understand what I was doing. And the advantage is that my parents didn't understand what I was doing. (laughs) Um, So the disadvantage, you know, which meant like they couldn't kind of give any advice or any kind of support. It was just like, okay, yeah, do your thing. And the advantage was the fact that because they didn't understand what I was doing, it felt very much kind of like, uh, well, you know, as long as he's not going to jail, you know, when I sold Entrepreneur Express and like the first payment was 70 grand and then within 12 months, the other 40, I remember the day that I had the 70 grand and I just like showed my dad, I was like, and he was just kind of like, what, you know, like, what, like, what are you doing? Right. Cause like I grew up in like what people call the ends. Right. So like Oaken Road during the time where there was all that beef going on between like Oaken Road, Peckham, Brixton to him, he knew I was spending a lot of time online. He just didn't understand like what I was doing. He just knew it was stuff. And at that time I had gone to uh, sixth form. I'd found my way into a boarding school. So like to him, I was just doing stuff, right? And then one day I come back and I'm like, ta-da, money. So I think for him, he didn't quite understand. But obviously, you know, once I told him that I wasn't like a pimp or anything like that, he was like, yeah, okay, cool. (laughs) And how was the boarding school thing unfolded? Because obviously most young kids like you from the ends don't end up going to a boarding school. So I got a scholarship to the boarding school. Driven by you or your parents were pushing that or (sighs) your teachers? um, between year seven and year 11, I went to a secondary school, like a state school, right? Um, called City of London, like very basic school, right? Um, by the way, that's like City of London Academy, not City of London Boys. Yeah. City of London Boys is an extremely good private school. I did not have that luxury. And then for sixth form, I basically was like, I'm smart. And so therefore I should go to where the smart people hang out. And to me, it was like, well, private school, boarding school. So what I did was I applied for four private schools and one of them was Christ Hospital. That was a boarding school. The reason I chose that was because of two things. Number one, I wanted to get out of my environment. There's kind of this whole sense that like, and I find this when talking to so many of my friends, which is like a lot of successful people have a superiority complex. They believe they are better than other people and I have that and I also had that when I was young I was like I believe I am better than my surroundings I believe I'm better than my environment and so 
therefore I must get out of this yeah. environment, which shows that like I'm better. So that was a big uh, driving function to go to Christ Hospital. It was almost like, well, I can be bigger than where I am now. For anyone who knows Christ Hospital, it's, it's uh, you know, kind of 16th century gowns, like you march into lunch every single day, um, you know, just Harry Potter, basically. It's yeah. like Hogwarts on earth. Um, and and I was really, there any inferiority complex at that point, having had a superiority complex when yes. you found yourself there? Like, Yes, and then that then turned into a superiority complex. So, Oh, explain that. That sounds interesting. I had an inferiority complex because the people at Christ Hospital, a lot of them were like insanely clever. Doing like further maths A-level at 15, you know, yeah. like Oxbridge ready at 14. I was just like, all right, you guys are playing a whole different game. So I thought I'd come into this game being the smarty pants. And I realized that you guys are the fucking smarty pants, right? And so that had me thinking, I said, all right, what game can I play and what game can I win? That was when I then thought, do you know what? All of you guys have been kind of like coached to get into Oxbridge, uh, study the papers, do all that stuff. I'm going to play a different game. And that game was a game of business. You guys don't have that kind of like doggedness, that kind of like figure it out ability. And so there is no coincidence that Entrepreneur Express was like started when I was in sixth form because it was like, okay, look, I'm going to get the grades. I know I'll get the grades, but I also know that in these two years, I don't care about winning the game of like who is the smartest person, but I do care about winning a different game, which is the game of business and the game of entrepreneurship. And so that was a key driving function between uh, behind uh, kind of really get into business then. I mean, even in Crafts Hospital, man, there was like so many things that I did, which were just like entrepreneurial things. So I launched something called CH Speaks, Christ Hospital Speaks, which is basically like a public speaking competition. It was the first time that had ever been done. I launched a new kind of form of a debate club. There were so many things that I did, which were just like, I am entrepreneurial and you guys can't even think about it because all you guys want to do is like stay in your rooms and just like study. That's what I mean by it started off as like an inferiority complex and then like went to a superiority complex where it's like, okay, I feel inferior in this game, but I'm going to absolutely dominate in this other game. Oh my, what an interesting story, eh? It's, it's incredible. And the bit that really sort of jumps out for me is how important it was that from where you grow into school and you've got this sense of superiority that you think I'm playing a bigger game than what anybody yeah. else around me is. How did others react to that? Because our peer group, our environment can often shape us for good and for bad reasons. Yeah. And I'm interested in how others reacted and how you immunise yourself to go to Christ College and then to yeah. to go and develop from there. It depends on the group of people. So before I went to Christ Hospital, people saw me as the smart one, right? But that also involves what, I, what we call like the mandem, right? So the people like in the end also saw me as the smart one, which basically meant there was this, I was protected, Rather than them looking at me with, say, jealousy, they were like, he's going to make it out, you know? Most of the times, that feeling is towards people who they think could be good footballers. You know, people who are good footballers in the ends are often protected because they're like, well, you're going to make it out whilst we're going to 
do our do our bullshit um so before christ hospital that was the general sense like i almost felt like the golden boy you know like no one could touch me no one could fight with me not because they were like scared of me it was more like oh well he's smart like he's gonna get out of the end so let's make sure that we give that him everything we have exactly as well. e- exactly um in christ hospital that's a great question in christ hospital i think in the first year i had a lot of quote unquote enemies because i didn't fit into the thing and i would just do things and just go well why not do it this way right i also think when i sold entrepreneur express and i came back or even when i did the interview with branton and the word kind of went around i think people were like uh, you know really did he and then they saw the picture and they're like oh well you know maybe he knew someone he knew it's like it's it's like trying to constantly find a reason to uh to like justify their insecurities those w- were the two main mindsets that i had one was very protected the other was kind of i'd say a bit of jealousy which by the end was just kind of like uh well he's just going to do his thing so what did you do with that money from entrepreneur express <laughs> i squandered a lot of it i squandered 40 grand on uh spread betting Right. Uh and it all came from a very 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 That was me thinking you were clever. <laughs> I know. <laughs> me too. Um I squandered a lot of it because I thought wow this thing was so easy. You know, as I mentioned like from me having the idea to build in a distribution and then you know um selling it was like less than a year. So I was like oh well you know I've got the Midas touch. I can just do whatever and then you know realize I didn't. I gave some to my dad and gave some there supported on a whole range of things rent da, 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 da. that was good but i think most of it was just like a education lesson on like how not to spend money cuz it did come from a position of me almost thinking like oh well i can just do this over and over again but when you look back on that now can you see the benefits from that yeah i mean the benefits are now that i just you know uh so my company last year fanbyte where it's like that times 10 uh you know like um multiple um millions i'm like well yeah don't do spread betting uh so 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 i do see the advantage and i do see the benefit of it but i also think i could have learned that by not spending the money you know people say s- stuff like this which is like um i had to fail so i could learn through my failures like yeah that's cool but i just much rather learn from my successes you know <laughs> like i don't think you but can you though yeah. i think failure teaches you different lessons to success yeah i mean i think failure teaches you what not to do but success teaches you what to do yeah so just do more of the things that you have to do you know i've been you know find that quite an interesting thing which is like yes i failed a bunch of times and i've succeeded a bunch of times but i've learned a lot more from like succeeding than failing I I had an interview with Ed Sheeran the other day where he was saying success teaches you nothing is what he said you know mm. failure teaches you everything and I I disagree with that because yeah. I think that you learn from both I think that's the key though in life is to have both and what you're telling us here is you've got this great sort of story of businesses that started and didn't really go anywhere you've got business selling for a decent amount of money but mm. then you waste the money on you know yeah, spread yeah. betting and stuff it's all about this kind of stretch and reward you need to yeah. stretch you need to fail but you need the reward as well and i think too much failure is actually just kills you in the end yeah too much success 
probably also just kills and you you get end. too egotistical yeah. and you think you have the might as but yeah i mean look like you are right that you need a healthy dose of failure i say this a lot if you look at my linkedin for example it's like oh started a company at 14 started a company at 17 sold it started a company at 21 sold it for tens of millions he must have had a great life and it's like yeah but what I didn't include in the LinkedIn was like the eight other businesses that I tried and they all flopped. Um, so, so you need like a healthy um, dollop of that kind of thing. What I find interesting about your story is you're not seeing things that are already there and just replicating what other people have done. You're looking at the world in a very different way. And I think that's where true entrepreneurship lies, you know, seeing the things that others aren't seeing. So mm. is there a secret to it? Has it just come easy? Have you learned lessons in how people listening to this podcast can discover what the world needs. So I am, um, <laughs> ironically, I have not had any original ideas ever. Like none of my ideas really? are original or unique. In fact, if you look at the idea for, um, for what Fanbytes was, which um, for your listeners was like, you know, we helped brands to run influencer campaigns, right? I started that in 2017 and at that time, influencer marketing was like on the rise. And so all I had basically done was I had seen this had been working in the US and I just said, right, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to focus it on a Gen Z audience. That was it, right? Like I didn't come up with the idea of influencer marketing. I didn't come up with that um, with that. And who else was doing that in the UK at that time with the Gen Z audience? With the Gen Z audience, there weren't many. It tended to be the like holding companies, the like WPPs of the world, and but any individuals of the that world. you knew of in the US a lot. In the UK, no, not not any. So, one thing is seeing what other people do. Like yeah. some people don't even see it. Like I think I don't even see what other people do. Yeah, to replicate their success or to understand the way the world yeah, is going. Yeah. And then there's other people that do see it and do nothing about it. Yeah, I think you're giving yourself enough credit because you're seeing it. You're doing something about it and you're doing something about it. And even a, a tweak yeah, is all it takes. You're fair. tweaking and and you're selling the business in the end yeah. of tens of millions. One of my general frameworks has always been, well, like, if someone else has done it, then why can't I? Yeah. And then, you know, let me put a bit of, like, spin on it. All right. So um, if you ask me, well, why did Fanbytes work? I'd say, one, we niche down to that Gen Z audience. But the other thing was, like, when the influencer market started to become more more um, competitive, everyone was basically building large sales teams, trying to you know hire people. And I basically said, we are just going to get brands through marketing, just through content marketing, etc. So that approach, I think, came because I just learned how other people in other industries had done their thing, and then I just like bring it into my industry so maybe like to answer your question i'd say i'm generally very good at being able to thread different models from other industries and then weave them together to make something but like the actual fundamentals of the idea of the business is never unique it's just always like well this work this work this work i'm just gonna like make them have sex together <laughs> and then see what happens um and but what stands out for me in the way you described the business was the simplicity of it as well. Yeah, yeah. How powerful is simplicity? What made, I think, Fanbytes work, 
is that it was something that had been done several times before, but in different forms. So when people ask me, hey, when you sold the company last year, did you think this is what would happen? You know, did you think that you'd sell it? And I say, uh, yes, because it's exactly how I designed it in my head. Because as I mentioned, like 2017 influences were a new thing. People really didn't understand that. But that's also the exact thing that people felt about TV advertising at some point. That's also the same thing that people felt about podcast advertising, about radio advertising. I had like studied history enough to basically say, well, every time there is a new form of advertising, a new form of media, it starts sort of independent and then it ends up getting consolidated. This is just a rite of passage, basically. And so in 2017 was I thought, well, this is going to happen anyway, right? Like radio, it happened, PR, it happened, podcast, it happened, uh, video, it happened, PPC, it happened. And so the simple business is just be the person who has a bunch of this inventory and then sell it onto brands because whether it's five years, whether it's 10 years, whether it's blah, 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 there will be consolidation. So it was a simple business because it had been done several different times, but it was also a hard business, right? So it was like simple, but hard rather than like complex and easy. I much prefer those earlier businesses, like simple but hard businesses. So let's um, send a message then to the entrepreneurs listening to this, yeah. to people that would love to do this. Fan bites became big. Yeah. So it's not possible to do this kind of like you did before yeah. in your bedroom on your own, build something and sell <laughs> yeah. it. Explain to us how you recruit people around you. How do you pick up on co-founders? Yeah, yeah. Who do you speak to about investments and yeah, yeah. sales and all the things that suddenly come your way that you can't possibly know because they don't teach this stuff yeah, at school. Yeah. Okay, so there's co-founders as team and then there are investors. I'll take those in order. Co-founders. So I had a co-founder and then we then recruited a CTO. So I had a co-founder who was my uh, COO, then brought on a CTO. Um, co-founders are interesting because what I found in general is that you ideally don't want to just start a business with someone that you've just met in an ideal world you want to have some kind of small projects or something that you objectively work with them on yeah see how you vibe and then you go on to then like building a company so many people get enamored with this idea of i've just met this person they're great on paper but what i've come to realize like generally the best co-founders are kind of therapists to each other who can basically like call each other out on their bullshit right so like ambrose called me out on my bullshit a lot at the beginning because at the beginning i was a very bad leader like shocking leader example i was driven by ego i was like driven by me wanting to be right like that was it right and again i was 21 22 then and you know suddenly i'm, I'm like running an organization and we've raised a bit of money so i'm like oh my god this has to be right this has to be right and Ambrose would you know call me out on that several times same times i would also call him out on stuff and i say hey like you need to do this instead because the way you are approaching this is not like entrepreneurial it's more of just like a kind of manager type thing what do you mean by that entrepreneurial well so i would say especially at the beginning when we sold the company was um 75 people right basically from like zero to about 25 people i think 
your leaders need to be comfortable with making decisions that could not work out. And I think at the beginning, and I also had this um, to some degree, but I think kind of Ambrose is a very calculated person. Like he has a spreadsheet for his life, right? And so he looks at risk and then goes, uh, not sure, not sure. Whereas me, I'm like, yo, let's just go, right? Yeah. But from like zero to 25 people, I think that you need to be comfortable with, all right, there's going to be some kind of downside and I'm comfortable with that. If you're not, what then happens is that you just make uh, a lot of incremental steps rather than seismic steps. And so that was a perfect example of how you actually like need to be a bit more entrepreneurial and be okay with decisions where it's like, okay, um, it could go here or it could go here. Whereas when you're say uh, 50 people plus, it's more like, okay, it could go a bit here and it could go a bit here, right? But at the beginning, you're like, well, seesaw, who knows? Um, so that's on the co-founder's team. I think the overarching thing is that you want to hire people who would do a good job regardless of where they are. That was a framework breaker for me. So at the beginning of Fanbytes, I overhired for people who were very enthusiastic and passionate about influencer marketing. And I think that was a big mistake. What I should have done was like, say, for example, I'm hiring a salesperson. Should have been like, well, the salesperson just wants to be the best salesperson they possibly can be. And what my company is, is a vehicle for them to do that rather than like, they have to be so passionate about the thing that we're actively doing. If you can appeal to people's sense of wanting to be better, regardless of where they are, you would always find the best employees. Yeah. And then your final thing was about investors. Um, Man, I'm actually kind of the worst person to ask about investors. And the reason why, so we raised, over the course of the business, we raised um, 2 million. And um, every single one of them was kind of like weird. So for example, the first ever check that we got was from a guy called uh, Toby Austin. The way that we got him to invest was during my gap year, I wanted to work for his company. And he said, no. Because uh, you're too young and we tend to hire people with a bit of experience, but I like you. And um, when you next start your next business, hit me up, right? So like, that's a very unrepeatable way of getting investors. Oh, yeah. Like, go to people, go ask to work for them. They will say no and then raise money from them. But I do think over time, it got a bit easier. We asked people who had investors who they would recommend and stuff like that. When you're going fundraising, never go fundraising where you are in a position of weakness. So anytime we'd raise money, because we didn't go out and just raise like, you know, 2 million straight from the back. It was like uh, like 200 and then 300 and then 500, then 600. It was always in a position of strength. It was always the business is going this way and you best basically jump on this train because the train is leaving the station rather than kind of like, uh, you know, please, can you fund my idea? That was a big change in the way that we approach fundraising, which made it incredibly easy. So can I ask you about the topic of trust then? Yeah. Because I'm 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 struck by that first business that you set up, the tutoring business, yeah. where you almost had to invest trust in yeah. in both parties and you were disappointed by your margins yeah, 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 yeah. getting crept down. And then by the time that you've set up fan bites, yeah. you're having to trust an awful lot of yeah. people. Yeah. What did you learn about that process that allowed you to be more trusting to others? 
When I was younger, I assumed that people had negative intent. And then over time, I assumed that everyone had positive intent. So if you assume everyone has positive intent, then you treat them with a good degree of trust until they break that trust. Like even when I kind of first first uh, started Fanbytes, like say someone did something wrong, I just go like, well, they obviously did that wrong to like annoy me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or they came late to spite me. It's just like a very juvenile way of thinking until I went, well, actually, you know, there's there's a logical reason for why this may have happened. Maybe I didn't give them the right instructions, blah, 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 blah. Business owners always go through that sort of thing where they start off thinking, oh, I can't believe this person is so stupid. And then they go, well, what conditions did I create which perhaps didn't contribute to that? And then they tweak their approach. And that was kind of like the journey of trust that I went through. So from paranoid to pronoid. Yeah, pronoid. Yeah. I didn't even know pronoid was a word. Is that a word? Yeah. Oh, that's a good He's one. He's a professor, so. Oh, <laughs> yeah. to pronoid. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, you go, yeah. Pronoia, where you assume everybody is out to help you. Yeah. Paranoia is where you assume they're out to get you. There's a framework, actually. I think it's called, like, Hanlon's Razor. And it's basically, um, never mistake formalis that can be described by incompetence. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, um... I remember that thinking kind of going, oh, yeah, of course. Like, maybe they just don't know any better. That's why they made a mistake rather than, you know, they hate me or they want to spite me or something. Really? Yeah. So you go on this journey and then eventually the day comes where you end up selling fan bites for the reports are tens of millions of pounds, right? How does that feel? (laughs) How does that feel? I think there are three points to sell in a company and, you know, get in like a life-changing thing that you go, wow, my life has changed. The first one is when you get like the offers in and you can see the amounts on a sheet of paper. Yeah. And obviously you get your calculator out and go, oh, I own this percent. That means, you know, I think I may have done a calculation like 18 times. Like, <laughs> like just, okay, just to the penny, this means, you know. Just, and how does that particular moment feel? That bit doesn't feel real. Right. Because it does look like just numbers on a sheet of paper. Then, of course, you go through due diligence and you go through all of that stuff. I was never phased through due diligence. If you ask my co-founder whether he was phased, he'd be like, oh, my God, yes. Because, um, you know, due diligence is basically 10 weeks where they dig deeply into your, uh, your numbers, your finances, everything that you've ever said. And like, look, a very healthy portion of deals don't get closed through due diligence, right? And so he was always like, okay, is it going to go? Is it going to go? But I, I think I just always just had this sense of, well, this is going to happen. So it's just going to happen. All right. So that first feeling of, hmm, this doesn't feel real. The second one is the day that you get the money. That was just, oh my God, I cannot believe this happened. And that was just incredible excitement. I mean, um, Mitchell and Ambrose. So we all basically opened up new bank accounts specifically for this, right? And like, they were both on Lloyd's. So we're just like walking around the, the just around the office because on the 3rd of May we announced the deal so we announced to the public you know Times wrote about it BBC everyone's like talking about it but the money hadn't dropped so everyone is like congratulations oh my god oh my god and 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 uh, we're like yeah yeah man it's great but the money still hasn't dropped um and then Mitch and Ambrose are both on Lloyd's 
And so we're just like walking around, walking around, and then we're like checking our accounts. It's like it's because remember we got fresh new accounts for this, so it's showing zeros, right? So like we're checking, we're like, oh man, no zeros. Check again, no zeros. And then um, Ambrose then checks, and then he then starts shouting, ah, like just shouting, like just absolutely, like Ambrose is quite a calm, measured man. So when he when he shouts, you know something uh, serious happened. Mitchell also then goes, oh my god, right? And because I'm on Santander, I, I like go and and I'm expecting numbers, and it's still showing zero. You're then panicking, <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm like, yo, I. My first thought is like, did I give them the right sort code and account number, right? Did I give our lawyers the right sort code and account number? But then I did it and then happened. And I was like, oh my God. There's a video of me on my phone where it's just a six minute video. And I'm just going, wow. Sitting on the floor and there's a bottle of like Moet champagne next to me. And I'm just like, wow, wow, wow. Like that's all I can say because at that point is elation. So the first point is, wow, this doesn't feel real. Second point is, wow, this is real. This is my new life. And then the next point is actually about two, three months afterwards, which is that at that point, it still hadn't sunk in. The world still goes around, you know, the next day I went to the gym and I went to Sainsbury's and I bought apples and then I went home and someone described it as like, if you have a parent pass away. So like, I kind of got the same feeling as when my dad passed away when I was like, yeah, pretty much at the beginning of um, Fan Bites. And I remember thinking to myself, I was going on the bus, I was doing stuff and I was like, oh my God, like... My life has changed, but the world hasn't changed. You know, three months afterwards was then I was like, oh, okay. The world hasn't changed. When the money dropped, I was convinced that like the world would change. Like the earth will open and like everyone will start singing and it'd be like, yes, you did it, my son. Right. But um, that didn't happen. So those were like the three kind of feelings. One was very much like this can't be real. The other one was like, wow, this is now my life. And then the third one was like, oh, okay, nothing really changed. The whole world just kept going on and kept going on. And I find that to be the case with everyone. I was speaking to a friend who just uh, sold his company for uh, 400 million. And he was just like, yeah, man, next day I went to McDonald's. I was like, dude, just buy McDonald's, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so yeah, those are the changes. But that's there's an interesting link there. There's a famous study that was done with lottery winners where they looked at the happiness levels of people that win the lottery or have a, a massive yeah, yeah, windfall yeah. like yourself. And what they found is their happiness levels spike massively yeah. for a short period of time. Yeah. But eventually it adapts back to where it was before and yeah. that, that world is normal. Would you say you're happier now than you were before? Oh, yeah, yeah. You would? Categorically. Your like, happiness yeah. level has yeah, shifted. Yeah, like... like you know, yeah, I know the whole money doesn't make you happy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, cool. But look, like, I am significantly happier. Like, the fact that I can take care of my family, I can take care of my friends, I can do whatever I want, da, 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 like, tick, 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 perfect, perfect, perfect. But that also is because, like, during fan bites, I think I was, like, generally also a very, like, I was a happy person. So it made me happier. Now, if I was like a sad, anxious person all the time, I don't think that the money would have made me happy. So I don't think it goes from like sad to happy. I think it's like happy to happier. And like, that's the way that I feel. So if, so if before the acquisition, my happiness was like, I don't know, seven out of 10, I'm now like 
nine out of 10. Whereas beforehand, if it was like, well, I am just sad and anxious and I'm a two out of 10, I would not be a nine out of 10. I'd, yeah. I'd just be like a three, it just which is still sad. It. Exactly. Yeah. Just picking up on your dad, what was his name? Godfrey. What would Godfrey have thought on the day that money came into your account? Well, firstly, he'd have thought, well, thank God that um, the thing you've been working on for so long actually turned out to be something. Um, so before he passed away, we had a conversation, a random conversation. I, and I swear, this sounds like it's from a film. We had just started Fanbytes and we'd got an article in the Daily Mail. And, you know, he worked in the council and he'd been basically like since this article and he still didn't quite understand what I was doing. So I remember him, he called me to his room and then he said, Hey, you know, I'm so proud of you. I'm, I'm so proud of what you're doing. I, I don't really understand what it is, but um, keep going. And then two days afterwards, he passed away. And I think his feeling would have been just incredible pride because I think he always knew I would do something significant. Even when he was encouraging me to go to university and stuff, there was always this kind of like, but if you find something else, do it. Which is very different for African parents. African parents are very much like education, education, education. But I think he had this kind of sense of, my son is going to do something significant. I don't know what it is. So I think he would go pride. And I do think he would also say like, I knew it all along. In fact, a lot of my friends have, have said this, that like they felt that they knew all along that like there will be some degree of uh, success with fan rights. I think your dad deserves a lot of credit then in this story, doesn't he? Because yeah. I'm not sure you do this if you're not given the freedom and what we call psychological safety yeah. from your dad to go, do you know what? Go and be brave. Yeah, yeah. And my mom as well. I mean, like, I didn't live with her, but as I mentioned earlier, like, she was very effusive with praise. You know, like, I could have done anything. And she'd be like, oh, you are the best at it. You are the best at it. You are the best, whatever, rock climber the world has ever seen, you know? So um, I think both of them, that kind of psychological safety was very big. Nice. Well, that's huge though, isn't it? That, yeah. Like, so what's your mum's reaction to it been like? Um... I think with her, there's been a lot of interesting conversations we've had where like, she doesn't, she still doesn't quite understand it. Like she understands that, you know, her son now can take care of her, but that's kind of it. Whereas I think like other people have a much greater sense of what it means for my life, for their life. I mean, my grandma still doesn't understand. Like when I said, oh, I'm going to, Egypt or I'm going to the you know this or whatever some country and she says oh like for work or for leisure and I say well just for fun I don't have a job now and she goes but why you should be working I was like I don't need to now so it's all good no but you know you need to work a man needs to work yeah so I think you know for like <laughs> for like that mentality it's a bit of a frame breaker but uh for my friends and perhaps like my aunties and uncles, I think like they understand it more than my mum, basically. So you say your your grandma says you you should be working. Yeah. Like, are we talking to a retired guy right now? I think if at age of 28 you retire, that is a big problem. What I would say is that this is, um you know, there's this 
phrase I saw and someone said, I wish everyone could get wealthy so they realize wealth is not the answer. And I really like that framework because when I speak to friends who, you know, like sold companies for hundreds of millions or even myself, it's like, well, what else are you going to do with your time? And I think everyone kind of thinks they get to the end goal and then life is over. But here are two things that I've realized, which is often when people uh, win the money game, they then go and try and play the status game. And the problem with things like the status game is that it's just like a never-ending game, right? There'll always be someone richer, better looking than you, taller than you, handsomer than you, etc. And like, I've tried to do a lot to make sure I don't get involved in that kind of status game. I was with a friend recently and he was comparing himself to this other guy who had sold his company. And I said, well, do you know that like, you are richer than that guy. So why are you comparing? And he said, yeah, I know, but he has a hotter girlfriend. And I was almost like, do you understand what you're saying? Basically, you started off comparing yourself to this guy in terms of income and wealth. And now, through something you can't control, you're now comparing your partner to his partner. At what point is this going to end? Like, at what point? Is it, all right, well, now he has better looking kids than me. Like, it's just constantly going to be this game. And so one thing that I've been trying to do, and I advise so many of my friends who, who you know, who are doing well, et cetera, I, I say, don't get involved in the status game. Because the moment that you get involved in the status game, every day of your life, you would be like, oh, well, they've got more than me. They've got more than me. And it's such a bullshit way to live your life. So the reason I say all of that to answer about like retirement is, is like, no, it's obviously not retirement, but it's also like the thing that I am striving for, the thing that I'm in, the game that I'm in is more of a going back to the first of a question that, that, that we said, it was like, how good could you be? Right. So like, could I be the best I possibly can be in all the different uh, facets of my life, which is not judged by what other people think, but more by like, how good could I possibly be? You know what I mean? And with that um, basis, before we move on to our quick fire questions yeah. to wrap up, if I gave you a scale of one to a hundred and a hundred is you're, you've completed every level you're done. And zero is right at the beginning. Where are you on that scale? Where do you feel you are? The conventional answer that people would give is, you know, I'm just getting started, you know. Yeah, I'm at 5%. I'm at 5%. And again, like, yeah, I mean, that sounds good for the TikToks and stuff. But like, but like, I think I'm maybe like, I don't know, like 81 or 82. And that's also because, you know especially in business, people play games where the rules have been set by someone else. So people say, right, all right, the next thing I need to do has to be a billion dollars. Why? You know, the next thing I have to do has to go public IPO. Why? And I think for me, I have like set myself a bar where it's not a billion dollars. Like the next company that I do, even after we sold the company, within about six, yeah, about six weeks, about two months, I had a bunch of VCs being like, hey, here is 10 million. I don't know what you're going to do, but start off with 10 million. I want in on your next company. 
And I had to have so many conversations. It's like, eh, I don't really want to do that. You know, I don't really want to do the, like the game that you're choosing to play, which is, all right, let's now raise a 10 million C. Then afterwards we do a 30 million series A, then a 60 million series B, then we'll go billion dollars. Not really. So that's a way to answer your question, which is like, well, I say that, yeah, like 81, 82, because the hundred for me is not like a billion dollars. It's like, okay, um, uh, have a great physique, great body, have good friendships, have good network. And yes, you know, build another company that is a success, but the success is not like, well, did it IPO or did it go to a billion dollars? If that was my criteria, then I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm at three because I'm just getting started. It's like, all right, yeah, yeah. yeah, cool. That's nice. But um, but I think I just have a general uh, sense of realism um, as well. I mean, this is a um, a funny story actually with Fanbyte, um was business was going well, growing, et cetera. And, and a VC got in touch and wanted to basically fund the company. Fund, uh, I think, yeah, put in like 8 million into the business and just, you know, raise uh, like uh, 80 million, just like crazy valuation. And he asked me, hey, how do you think this becomes like the next unicorn? And I just said, it's just not. And he was so like, what? There's not going to be next unicorn? I was like, oh, no, not really. And I think it's because I had a very good sense of the game I was trying to play. And I had a very good sense of expectations. And I said, hey, I think this would easily make, you know, tens of millions, not hundreds of millions. And he then invested personally. And then when we saw the company, I was like, I told you, right? I think there's something to your listeners, which is like, whether you want to start a company or run in a company, try and figure out like, the core function and the core purpose of the reason why you're doing it because it can be so easy to like do it for the headlines do it for the fundraising do it for the likes do it for the clicks and you kind of forget the fundamental thing which is any business or at least this is my belief any business is a vehicle to serve you right not to serve other people is to serve you to make you happy make you more you know like give you income to provide for your family. Like it's a vehicle for you. The moment that you move to becoming almost like a slave to your business because you're playing someone else's game on how much to fundraise, how big your team is, how big your office is, how many press articles you have. That's the time that you've actually just lost the game. So I think that's a very important thing for people to internalize as they go on their kind of entrepreneurial journey. What a powerful way to finish. I think that's the title for this episode. Play the game. By your own rules. There you go. Nice. Ready for the quick fire questions? Yes. Three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you should buy into. A high agency, high self-agency, a high sense of urgency, and an unshakable belief that you can be more. I could work with you. (laughs) What's your biggest strength and your greatest weakness? Biggest strength. I am very good at getting people really excited about things. If I have an idea or if you have an idea, I can sell you on your own idea if you haven't sold yourself. Biggest weakness is that I am quite impatient. And this is something I've kind of tweaked and I've learned a bit more about myself. But I assume that like people have the same incentives as me. 
And so if I'm like, we need to do this because it's so fun. And at this moment, we should do it. I assume that everyone has like understood the sense of importance when actually you need to understand what that person's incentives are and then appeal to those rather than kind of, well, let's just go now. And that's a problem. If you could offer one bit of advice to your teenage self, what would you say? Realize that most of what you're trying to do has been done by someone else and your goal in life should be to try and collect and synthesize how other people have done things and then put your own spin on it. I think I cared too much at the beginning. That's why I said uh, during the interview, I have never had an original idea. I think I cared too much about like thinking about things from like, I needed to have the idea. I needed to be the guy. I needed to do it. When rather it's you want to collect a bunch of ideas and collect the right people who know the stuff and then bring them together rather than you needing to be the superstar and you needing to be the like source of all the answers. How important is legacy to you? Zero. I have zero desire for legacy. Last week I was in Cairo and I went to the museum and I saw this massive statue, like huge statue of these two people next to each other. And it was like, you know, here lies the king of da 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 da. I was like, 100 years ago, these people were the shit. Now they're dead. So now what? You know, like, we're going to die. And when we die, everyone will be like, oh, well, cool. They were good people. And then they just get on with their lives. Uh, so I do not care about legacy. I have never cared about legacy. I've never cared about when I die later on, what will people say about me? Because I'm dead. And the people who I care about their thoughts, they will also have died. There's that old saying that you should always aim not to be the smartest person in any room. Yeah. Where do you stand on that? If you had asked me this question when I was 20 or 21, I would have said, screw that, be the smartest. <laughs> um, and now I fully agree with the idea that you should not be the smartest person in the room and you should know the smartest people in the room. As I've just gone up in business, I've started to realize something so profound that a lot of business success is not based on what you know. It is more like who you know, who knows the what. So I've now become very well versed in what I call the people collection business. So like even my next company, I'm not thinking about what it is. I'm thinking like, who am I going to do it with? And then once I figured out the who, I'm like, yo, we will figure it out. I know we'd, we just would. But if we vibe intellectually, socially, then some magic will happen. So that's been a big uh, change from the way that I thought when I was younger up until now. Your final message for people listening to this episode, what would you like to leave ringing in their ears for how you would advise them to live their own version of high performance? You should set a bar that only you can measure and you should constantly challenge yourself to pass that bar. That living by other people's sense of what success is, is a surefire way to be incredibly miserable. Damien. Jake. 
I love guests that don't just give you like a stock answer, that they actually think about what they're saying, where you ask them something and they go, mm, hold on, most people would say this, but I think the answer is actually this. I thought he was a fascinating guy. Yeah, and the irony was that he said he's never had an original thought in his life, and yet a lot of what he was saying was bold and it was daring and it was original. My only thing is, I just believe that he's, he's going to have to go again. He's 28 years old. He's already set up and sold a number of businesses. You know, the early ones are a failure. The most recent ones have been successful. People like Timo don't stop. They keep going and going and going. But there was a really interesting response that he gave that I found fascinating. And it, and it echoed the conversation we had with the Crystal Palace co-owner, Steve Parrish, where he spoke about gathering interesting and yes. successful people around him. So rather than necessarily setting out with an idea for a business, as he said, you know, I'll like we'll discover that as long as I've got really smart people that I engage with and vibe with. And I think there's something really interesting about finding your tribe, being around people that share a similar drive, similar ambition, similar view of the world to you. I thought it was really cool. I loved it. Yeah, I did too. I think it reminded me of, there's, they often talk about in business, there's cycles, there's the three eyes, there's some people that innovate, there's some people that imitate, and then there's the idiots that come last. And I think he actually is an innovator. So, but it, by doing that, by imitating others' ideas and bringing them together. Top man. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Loved it. Well, look, I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. You know what? I just love the way that Timo continues to explore. And I don't think that Timo would have done anything like the things that he has experienced, the things he's experienced or achieved, the things he has, if he didn't constantly explore. I remember Johnny Wilkinson first sharing that thought with us here on High Performance. So if you take one thing away from this conversation, it's the power of exploration. Don't forget, you can also watch these conversations on YouTube as well as listen to them on your podcast platforms and find out more from High Performance at thehighperformancepodcast.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.